and thank you for listening to She Speaks Volumes, the primer for 500 years of feminist writings. We began season one with an excerpt from Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, and this episode ends the season with Virginia Woolf's Three Guineas. Three Guineas was written in 1938, as Europe is on the brink of World War II. The satirical book-length essay is a response to a letter that Wolf has received asking her for a donation towards peace efforts. The letter asks the question, how can women help prevent war? And the essay attempts to answer that. Within the essay, Wolf queries the idea of whether she's in fact qualified to answer this question. And in doing this, she explores the roles that women play in education, the professions, and within the private household. Within the letter are two hypothetical letters from two other organizations, one asking for help rebuilding a women's college, the other asking for donations to a women's professional organization. Through these letters, Wolf explores the relatively recent ability of women to be educated and to earn their own money, and of course to vote. At the time the essay was written, women had only had the vote for 10 years, though the daughters of educated men had been able to vote for 20. This phrase, the daughters of educated men, Wolf uses throughout the essay and has caused some contention in modern feminist scholars as being exclusionary. But Wolf herself admits to her own limited perspective, and that's why she uses the term daughters of educated men. It speaks to a more privileged demographic than many women would have fit into, and of course less privileged than a few. The excerpt that I'm reading is from the first letter, and it's from the treasurer of a women's college. An excerpt from Three Guineas by Virginia Woolf. Your letter, madam, has been waiting some time without an answer. But certain doubts and questions have arisen. May we put them to you, ignorantly, as an outsider must, but frankly, as an outsider should, when asked to contribute money. You say, then, that you are asking for £100,000 with which to rebuild your college. But how can you be so foolish, or are you so secluded among the nightingales and the willows, or so busy with profound questions of caps and gowns, and which is to walk first into the provost's drawing-room, the master's pug or the mistress's palm, that you have no time to read the daily papers? Or are you so harassed with the problem of drawing £100,000 gracefully from an indifferent public that you can only think of appeals and committees, bazaars and ices, strawberries and cream? Let us then inform you we are spending £300 million annually upon the Army and Navy, for according to a letter that lies cheek by jowl with your own, there is a grave danger of war. How, then, can you seriously ask us to provide you with money with which to rebuild your college? If you reply that the college was built on the cheap and that the college needs rebuilding, that may be true. But when you go on to say that the public is generous and that the public is still capable of providing large sums for rebuilding colleges, let us draw your attention to a significant passage in the Master of Trinity's memoirs. It is this. Fortunately, however, soon after the beginning of this century, the university began to receive a succession of very handsome bequests and donations. And these, aided by a liberal grant from the government, 
have put the finances of the university in a such a good position that it has been quite unnecessary to ask for any increase in the contribution from the colleges. The income of the university, from all sources, has been increased from about £60,000 in 1900 to £212,000 in 1930. It is not a very wild hypothesis to assume that this has been to a large extent due to the important and very interesting discoveries which have been made in the university and Cambridge may be quoted as an example of the practical results which come from research for its own sake. Consider only the last sentence and Cambridge may be quoted as an example of the practical results which come from research for its own sake. What has your college done to stimulate great manufacturers to endow it? Have you taken a leading part in the invention of the implements of war? How far have your students succeeded in business as capitalists? How then can you expect very handsome bequests and donations to come your way? Again, are you a member of Cambridge University? You are not. How then can you fairly ask for any say in their distribution? You cannot. Therefore, madam, it is plain that you must stand at the door, cap in hand, giving parties, spending your strength and your time in soliciting subscriptions. That is plain. But it is also plain that outsiders who find you thus occupied must ask themselves, when they receive a request for a contribution towards rebuilding your college, shall I send it or shan't I? If I send it, what shall I ask them to do with it? Shall I ask them to rebuild the college on the old lines? Or shall I ask them to rebuild it, but differently? Or shall I ask them to buy rags and petrol and Bryant and May's matches and burn the college to the ground? These are the questions, madam, that have kept your letter so long unanswered. They are questions of great difficulty, and perhaps they are useless questions. But can we leave them unasked in view of this gentleman's questions? He is asking how we can help him to prevent war. He is asking how we can help him to defend liberty, to defend culture. Also, consider these photographs. They are pictures of dead bodies and ruined houses. Surely, in view of these questions and pictures, you must consider very carefully before you begin to rebuild your college. What is the aim of education? What kind of society? What kind of human being should it seek to produce? At any rate, I will only send you a guinea with which to rebuild your college if you can satisfy me that you will use it to produce the kind of society, the kind of people, that will help to prevent war. Let us then discuss as quickly as we can the sort of education that is needed. Now, since history and biography, the only evidence available to an outsider, seem to prove that the old education of the old colleges breeds neither a particular respect for liberty nor a particular hatred of war, it is clear that you must rebuild your college differently. It is young and poor. Let it therefore take advantage of those qualities and be founded on poverty and youth. Obviously, then it must be an experimental college, an adventurous college. Let it be built on lines of its own. It must not be built of carved stone and stained glass, but of some cheap, easily combustible material, which does not hoard dust and perpetrate traditions. Do not have chapels. Do not have museums and libraries with chained books and first editions under glass. Let the pictures and the books be new and always changing. Let it be decorated afresh by each generation with their own hands cheaply. The work of the living is cheap. Often they will give it for the sake of being allowed to do it. Next, 
What should be taught in the new college? The poor college. Not the arts of dominating other people. Not the arts of ruling, of killing, of acquiring land and capital. They require too many overhead expenses, salaries and uniforms and ceremonies. The poor college must teach only the arts that can be taught cheaply and practiced by poor people, such as medicine, mathematics, music, painting, and literature. It should teach the arts of human intercourse, the art of understanding other people's lives and minds, and the little arts of talk, of dress, of cookery that are allied with them. The aim of the new college, the cheap college, should not be to segregate and specialize, but to combine. It should explore the ways in which the mind and body can be made to cooperate, discover what new combinations make good holes in human life. The teachers should be drawn from the good livers as well as from the good thinkers. There should be no difficulty in attracting them, for there would be none of the barriers of wealth and ceremony, of advertisement and competition, which now make the old and rich universities such uneasy dwelling places. Cities of strife, cities where this is locked up and that is chained down, where nobody can walk freely or talk freely for fear of transgressing some chalk mark, of displeasing some dignitary. But if the college were poor, it would have nothing to offer, competition would be abolished, life would be open and easy. People who love learning for itself would gladly come there. Musicians, painters, writers would teach there because they would learn, what could be of greater help to a writer than to discuss the art of writing with people who were thinking not of examinations or degrees, or of what honor or profit they could make literature give to them, but of the art itself? And so with the other arts and artists, they would come to the poor college and practice their arts there because it would be a place where society was free, not parceled out into the miserable distinctions of rich and poor, of clever and stupid, but where all the different degrees and kinds of mind, body, and soul merit cooperated. Let us then found this new college, this poor college, in which learning is sought for itself, where advertisement is abolished, and there are no degrees, and lectures are not given, and sermons are not preached, and the old poisoned vanities and praise which breed competition and jealousy. The letter broke off there. It was not from lack of things to say. The preroration, indeed, was only just beginning. It was because the face on the other side of the page, the face that a letter writer always sees, appeared to be fixed with a certain melancholy upon a passage in the book from which quotation has already been made. Headmistresses of schools, therefore, prefer a belettered staff, so that students of Newnham and Girton, since they could not put B.A. after their name, were at a disadvantage in obtaining appointments. The honorary treasurer of the rebuilding fund had her eyes fixed on that. What is the use of thinking how a college can be different, she seemed to say, when it must be a place where students are taught to obtain appointments? Dream your dreams, she seemed to add, turning, rather wearily, to the table with which she was arranging for some festival, a bazaar presumably, but we have to face realities. That, then, was the reality on which her eyes were fixed. Students must be taught to earn their livings. And since that reality meant that she must rebuild her college on the same lines as the others, it followed that the College for the Daughters of Educated Men must also make research produce practical results which will induce bequests and donations from rich men. 
It must encourage competition. It must accept degrees and colored hoods. It must accumulate great wealth. It must exclude other people from a share of its wealth. And therefore, in 500 years or so, that college, too, must ask the same questions that you, sir, are asking now. How, in your opinion, are we to prevent war? An undesirable result that seemed. Why, then, subscribe a guinea to procure it? That question, at any rate, was answered. No guinea of earned money should go to rebuilding the college on the old plan, just as certainly none could be spent upon building a college upon a new plan. Therefore, the guinea should be earmarked, rags, petrol, matches, and this note should be attached to it. Take this guinea, and with it, burn the college to the ground, set fire to the old hypocrisies, let the light of the burning building scare the nightingales and incarnadine the willows, and let the daughters of educated men dance round the fire, and heap armful upon armful of dead leaves upon the flames, and let their mothers lean from the upper windows and cry, let it blaze, let it blaze, for we have done with this education. If the question that Wolf's posing in this essay is, do women want equality with men in a world that men have created? I would say that that question has gone unanswered for almost a century, a century in which women have made giant strides and kicked aside obstacles to achieve equality with men in a patriarchal system. As women move more and more into leadership positions and into controlling vast sums of wealth, perhaps this is a question we should ask ourselves again, which is what we will be doing in season two of She Speaks Volumes, as we look at the evolution of feminist thinking in the post-war era, but before the second wave truly begins. Thank you for listening. Season two begins on January the 24th. Meanwhile, you can listen to all the episodes in Season 1 at feralculturelab.com or in the podcast player of your choice. And if you have any comments or suggestions for this episode or any of the episodes in the podcast, feel free to comment on Facebook or to email me. Links are in the show notes below. (music) 